This information is not intended as legal, medical, or nutritional advice and is for informational purposes only. Vaccine Choice Canada does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements, views, and opinions presented by its guests. Welcome to our weekly call with Vaccine Choice Canada. My name is Ted Kuntz and I'm the president of Vaccine Choice Canada. A special welcome to all of those joining us for the first time. If you find value in these conversations, I invite you to support our work and our mission by becoming a member of Vaccine Choice Canada. In addition to wonderful speakers, you will receive a weekly Choice Insider newsletter with up-to-date information and calls to action to help us protect our rights and freedoms, most especially our right to medical choice. You know, it, it's uh, shocking to me how uh, this has grabbed hold of Canada. I, I think that if any of us would have two weeks ago asked if this was possible, I don't think we would have thought it's possible. Uh, so it's remarkable what's happened. And, and, it and is. And I guess my main thing that I, uh, hey, this is what I do. This is what I, this is my perspective. I have to insert it here. Of course, we have to be prepared for when and if uh, government provocateurs step in and try to make something violent or something that's going to shift the narrative. Um, because we know, of course, that is not conspiracy theory. It is conspiracy fact. And Canadians are particularly well situated to know that because they know that in 2007 at the uh, SPP protest, the Security and Prosperity Partnership protest in Montebello uh, in 2007, the Sûreté de Québec, the Quebec Provincial Police, did dress up as protesters and they were caught, uh, these masked Policemen were caught with rocks in their hands approaching the police line about to start an incident that would have led to masses of people being arrested. They were called out by other protesters who were attempting to rip their masks off their face, calling them out as police, and they get taken behind the police line, put down. And of course, the uh, the infamous photograph of the protesters wearing the exact same issue boots as the police that were arresting them. And of course they did come out and they had to admit, yes, these were undercover policemen, but they were just keeping an eye on the protests. That's all they were there to do with rocks in their hands, approaching the police lines, trying to get people riled up. So we know that absolutely government provocateurs do step into events like this and try to make them violent. And that's why, from what I've seen, I haven't looked today because it's 9 a.m. in the morning here. I'm just getting up and going. But the last coverage that I saw was a st story from CTV News about how the Ottawa police are preparing for, you know, if this turns violent or if this becomes disruptive and they're getting the Parliament Protective Services involved. So I just want to warn about that and don't believe it when it starts happening. Oh, this is violent and disruptive. We got to do something about this. And uh, I, I think it's our job as people who know about this to spread the word about those types of tactics so that we can head them off at the pass. Yeah, I saw that same CTV uh, uh, clip from uh, interviewing, I think, uh, an Ottawa police officer. And it seems like they're already trying to put out that narrative that, you know, these are just a bunch of uh, radicals, white supremacists, uh, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I have to imagine that Trudeau and company are are shaking in their boots with the the kind of uh, crowd that's showing up. I think they're they're talking about five hundred thousand people, fifty thousand trucks, and, and more. Uh, it's it, it's a remarkable show of force that, uh, like I said, we wouldn't have predicted two weeks ago, would we? Well, it's it's a convenient time for Trudeau to be uh, isolating for five days. He can't yeah. come out in public. 
Mm-hmm. I, I hear he tested negative, but he's still doing the right thing. What a, what a guy. I, I actually think he's under his bed with a couple of stuffies, but that's my <laughs> opinion. So, how, how do you think this is going to play out, James? Because they're not going to let, uh, they're not going to stop their control agenda. Uh, but they're, you know, 50,000 trucks, it's not like you can tow them away. It would take a couple of months to do that. Uh, well, uh, so I think there um, there is an obvious play that could be made here, and I don't have the crystal ball, so I don't know. But the obvious play from the perspective of the uh, people who want to continue to control the narrative as they continue to advance that agenda that you're talking about is the two steps forward, one be- one step back, or the rug pull, pull, or whatever you want to call it, call it, whereby they concede on this particular measure in this particular time. Don't worry, guys, we're not going to do that thing that we were talking about. Meanwhile, they start instituting the hard and hardwiring in the actual infrastructure for the biosecurity state in general. An example of that also from the New World Next Week that I just posted up a couple of hours ago from the U.S., where you might have heard that OSHA is now withdrawing their big business mandate. Uh, They tried it. The Supreme Court shot it down. They're withdrawing. Don't worry, guys, we're not going to do this um, vaccine mandate for big businesses dot, dot, dot. But if you read the fine print, yeah, they're withdrawing the temporary ETS, emergency testing procedure, whatever it's called, um, that they had forwarded. But they're doing so in order to work on preparing a permanent COVID-19 health standard, a permanent standard for COVID-19. As we all know, this is all going to be gone in a whatever it is, a year or whatever it is, this will be gone. Why are they performing a permanent standard for this that is going to hardwire in this rule that they couldn't pass as an emergency temporary measure? What's going on? It's And of course, what gets reported? Oh, so they're withdrawing the big business vaccine mandate, but they don't tell you that they're working on actually instituting that in law behind the scenes and working on a permanent standard for it. That's my my suspicion when I see something like this, uh, at the very least, I- I'm not saying don't do this. I'm not saying this is a trap. I'm not. I'm, of course, please push on and support the convoy. And yes, this is this is an exciting time, and we have to push forward and make sure that the uh, that this does not pass, and that the crazy mandates that are going in do not get hardwired into law. But keep your eyes on what's going on legislatively behind the scenes as well, because I have a feeling they'll make the headlines about, don't worry, we're withdrawing the the passports and all of this. But in the meanwhile, they're working on actually making that a permanent thing. And that's been my suspicion since the beginning, is that this this isn't about COVID-19. This is about the biosecurity state. And this is just one step towards that. And they can get some things hardwired in and they'll go too far, maybe even on purpose, so that they can take a step back but you don't notice they've already taken three or four steps forward. And then the next time they take another few steps forward and a step back. So we know where this is going and we have to m- remain vigilant no matter what they um, report about what occurs as a result of this type of uh, convoy. Well, I've had lots of people ask me this week before the convoy started about whether the you know the UK rolling back some of their mandates was good news. And my my response was on one hand, yes, in terms of it, it, you know, they're responding to pressure. But on the other hand, they're still acting as if they get to decide how many rights and freedoms we get to enjoy today. And as long as that narrative is still there, that paradigm is still there, we're, we're, we're in the same dance, aren't we? 
That, that is exactly right. And that's why it is absolutely so imperative that we get the message out there that this this entire fraud of the past couple of years and all the craziness that's gone on under the cover of this media generated crisis has to be undermined at the base level, at the narrative level. Because yes, again, whatever they do in terms of whatever legislative steps they take here and withdraw there, the underlying narrative is the key to all of this. And if people accept there was a big health crisis, so we had to use these emergency laws, and yeah, it wasn't perfect, but it kept us safe for a while, and then they let it go. If that becomes the narrative of this time, then we lose the bigger battle, the, the war. We lose the war, essentially, because that, that is the war for people's minds and understanding of, of what is taking place here. As, as you just quite well articulated, this is about establishing the right of the government to come in and abrogate any. Perm- you know, These are our ch- charter rights and freedoms. They cannot be taken away except during some sort of health crisis declared by the media, right? Uh, if that becomes the norm, then we've lost. So we have to set the narrative here at a much more fundamental level. Yeah. Uh, have you seen uh, the latest interview that Jordan Peterson did with Brian Peckford on Monday? I have not. And are you aware of at all what Brian Peckford has done? So he he has uh, filed lawsuit against the Canadian government for violating our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And he he was interviewed by uh, Jordan Peterson on Monday, and it was released yesterday. And it, it, it's a fabulous interview. Um, and Brian talks about how the government has not used the parliamentary process uh, you know, our media has been basically captured and, and gutted. Our, our regulatory agencies, our courts have made decisions that actually go against the charter, et cetera, et cetera. And his position is that we are in a very dangerous time with our democracy. And uh, it's uh, unclear whether, unless the judges at the Supreme Court uh, stand up for the charter, we we no longer have a charter. It, it, we're, it's that serious. And I, I assume you would agree. Uh, absolutely, of course, yes. But then again, that doesn't that point to the absurdity of the system in general? That it really does rely on these Supreme Court justices. Well, I hope, I hope they make the right decision. But if they don't, bye bye charter. What was the charter worth? If that is the case, and that's in fact uh, another incredibly important part of this narrative that I'm going to be stressing in an upcoming podcast I'm working on on the rule by emergency, the state of emergency that has become the governing principle of the 21st century from obviously the catalyzing catastrophic event of 9-11 right through to COVID-19 and beyond. Um, that is the the new governance paradigm by which emergency, uh, we have to abrogate this and that and the other right and freedom you supposedly had on paper. If it's written down on paper, you have it until they take away that piece of paper, right? And the justices gavel down on it. This is a fundamentally broken system. So um, I think we have to expose that part of what's going on as well. So how do we reclaim the charter? How do we reclaim our democracy? It's, it's well, not- <laughs> yeah, you're talking to the wrong person if you're talking about reclaim democracy, because democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. I, I don't want that. I don't think that is the, the fundamental system that we need to be a- advocating for. No, my my rights, my fundamental rights as a human being do not come from any piece of paper. They are not voted on by anyone. I do not care if 99 people out of 100 vote that they can do whatever they want to me, inject me with whatever. 
nope, sorry, my fundamental human rights apply, regardless of what your piece of paper says. And until we really fundamentally change and that mind uh, conduct a mind shift operation to change our fundamental perspective on what rights are and where they come from and how we arrive at them, I think we're going to be lost in this because we get caught in the political game. Oh, well, um, you know, the majority of people voted for it. So I guess we got to do it now. I agree with you. I think that if we're going to reclaim uh, our sovereignty, it's going to be Canadians standing up and having exactly the principle you said is that my rights belong to me. Nobody uh, assigned them to me. No piece of paper uh, uh, is responsible. Uh, it's a God-given right. And I'm going to stand regardless of what the government does or what pieces of paper say. And until that happens, we're going to always be vulnerable to tyrants. That's it. That's why the only political document that I've ever read that really resonates with me is the Declaration of Independence. And I'm Canadian. So, <laughs> but no, it's not coming from some piece of paper. It's not coming from some court or some, some group of people. No, I declare my independence. And these, these are the, the terms I'm willing to consider, but they're my terms based on my fundamental rights as a human being which are God-granted or whatever you want to believe in, wherever they come from, at any rate, they do not have anything to do with some sort of democratic process. And we're pretty far away from claiming that authority as Canadians. We've, we've been pretty naive, pretty soft. We thought we had a benevolent government who was going to take good care of us. It's, uh, we, we, I think we've got some growing up to do in this country. We do, but this is the amazing times that we are living in. I I really don't believe that people truly appreciate the moment in human history that we are at right now. Um, and I have, have regained my sense of incredible amazement at, at what we're living through right now by doing a course, an online course that I did late last year for Renegade University. I did a course on, on the history of mass media which might sound like an innocuous topic in the history of mass media. But actually, when you really, really start to look into the history of, say, the development of the printing press and the incredible revolution in European society that resulted, I think, directly from the, the beginnings of that technology, that technology enabled an incredible flowering of communication and understanding that was unparalleled in human history to that point. Suddenly, the masses had ways of propagating information to many people relatively cheaply and relatively quickly, at least for the 15th century standards that uh, the, of the context that that was being developed in. And that truly led to incredible changes, the, the Reformation and the, the growth of ideas of democracy and everything else, the changes in society, I think directly stem from that technological change that happened. We are living through just such a technological change, a once, once in every 500 years type event is happening right now. Unfortunately, we may be ignorant of that history, but the people who want to control society are not ignorant of that history. That is why I think we are being steeped into this government by crisis mode, 9-11, the terror boogeyman is coming to get you, vaccines are your solution, and here's a vaccine passport, uh, pandemic, world war, whatever they have to throw at you to keep you in a state of fear so that they can govern over you, because I think the, uh, the would-be societal engineers know this is the time of history that could lead to an incredible revolution. 
things that we would never have imagined 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago are now possible and being enabled by this technology of communication that allows someone like me, who that, who am I? I'm just some boy from Calgary who went to Japan and you would never have known I existed if it wasn't for this technology. We would not be sitting here talking about this. We would not be sharing information, changing narratives and perception among the public about what's happening in the outside world. It is an incredible time. And that's why they're cracking down as hard as they can right now and trying to institute the most draconian uh, system of technocratic control conceivable in all of human history is to try to put a lid on what is happening right now. We can drive this through if we can grasp the nature of what is happening right now and how much power we have and how much they fear it. That is that is really the, the ultimate perception at the base of all of this that can truly change the, the direction of human history. Boy, that's a pretty interesting way to look at this. I mean, I, I really believe this is a historic moment, and I've all, all wondered why the cabal seems to be in such a hurry to to lock us down. And that's an interesting perspective that you've offered. Well, I think I think the first wave of societal transformation that is taking place as a result of this technological communications revolution has already happened, and. I I really do see now in retrospect, I do see there was a lot that was coming to a head in 2019 specifically. And I was noting it and writing about it at the time. I wrote a, a number of editorials about all of the protests that were sweeping across the globe at that time. And I said, they're preparing for something. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I had no idea what specifically they were preparing for. But even that in retrospect is now obvious with Event 201 for example, or the Milken Institute uh, uh, talk between, say, uh, Anthony Fauci and um, uh, Dr. Rick Bright and other people like that were talking at a conference in October of 2019, talking about this incredible new mRNA vaccine technology that would be so great, but we just can't get anyone interested in it and we don't have enough money for it and there's no sense of crisis. And the, the moderator of that event said, wouldn't it have been a better thing if more people died in the Spanish, uh, sorry, in the swine flu of 2009? And things like this, like just craziness right there in the open. And then, hey, suddenly this all happened. It is pretty amazing when you look back that uh, the dots are all there. The breadcrumbs are all there uh, to lead us here. We, we I, I think we just couldn't imagine this kind of uh, tyranny. Uh, it was beyond the scope of what we thought was possible. We thought we well, were living. Unfortunately, and I don't say this to blow my own horn, but unfortunately, I could imagine that. And that is precisely why I started doing this back in 2007. And in fact, that was the feedback that I got from all my friends and family when I first started doing this. Aren't you scared you'll be put on some sort of list? And I said, that is exactly why I am doing it, because I do not want to live in a society where we're going to have to, okay, now everyone just shut up and don't say anything that you're thinking because you might be put on a list. No, that is why I am doing this, because we have the relative freedom and luxury to be able to speak out. So I'm going to speak out as loud and as hard as I can at this moment. And that was back in 2007. And I always envisioned it was heading this way. If you go back in my archives, I said over and over and over and over, you're, I'm going to be censored from YouTube at some point. This is not, you are not going to be able to get this information easily. It is going to be censored. And I've had the feedback since I got censored from YouTube last year. I've had the feedback from many people who've been listening to me for years. And 
enjoy my reporting and realize that I, you know, I do talk about things that matter. And they say, they've told me, well, I didn't really believe you. I, I mean, I thought it was just something you were saying. No, I really believe that. I know that they are going to do this because as I say, the communication system right now is the most important piece of all of this because setting the narrative is what this is all about. And uh, it, I, I, I've always had this sense, but it's just become so crystallized for me recently, is that whatever happens, truly, whatever happens, maybe the convoy goes to Ottawa and nothing happens and it fizzles out. Okay, so then the media can come in and say, look, these fringe wingnuts, they came and they protested, but it didn't matter. Well, maybe they, they go roll into Ottawa and everything changes and the government goes, okay, we're going to release all mandates. Then the media can come along and say, look, it's all over. Now I'll go back home and they won't report on what, you know, the legislative actions that are being taken to hardwire it in. Whatever it is, the narrative control is the key, the linchpin to all of this. If they can convince enough people that this is happening or that is happening, then they can direct society. That is the key to all of this. So, Again, that's why our independent voices are so important, so crucial right now. It is so important that we're able to talk to each other. And that's why it was precisely why they're cracking down with censorship so hard right now. I read your one of your recent articles, uh, what Hitchcock taught uh, the social engineers. And you talk about how movies, books and TV programs aren't mere popcorn entertainment. Uh, that they're, they're mechanisms of uh, controlling the narrative of manipulating us. And I think we, we, we don't appreciate the, the level of sophistication of the programming that we're being exposed to. No, we do not. And uh, that article in particular picked up on something that uh, David Knight, maybe some of your people know about that. David Knight um, uh, played a clip of uh, Alfred Hitchcock being interviewed by Dick Cavett from the 1970s. And it was Dick Cavett asking um hitchcock about a macguffin what's a macguffin and some people in the audience might know but uh a macguffin is as hitchcock explains it's something that spy fiction writers often use it is literally just a thing it doesn't matter what it is it's the plans to the ford on the kyber pass it's uh, plans for an atom bomb whatever it's the thing that motivates everyone on screen to do what they're doing so that we as the audience know, oh, they're they're after the thing, the MacGuffin, whatever it is. And that's all we need to know. We don't, I mean, the details of it really don't matter for the purposes of the story. So then the story unfolds and, oh, we know they're going after this plan and they're trying to get the plan and he's trying to hide the plan, whatever. So that, uh, as David Knight points out, that essentially is fill in the blank. It's uh, it's the COVID-19. It's uh, it's uh, man-made climate change. It's uh, terrorism. Whatever it is at the moment, whatever boogeyman, just it's the thing that we know, oh, okay, there's this bad thing out there and they're trying to stop it. And that's all they need really as cover for whatever operations they're going to run. So for example, in obviously in the COVID-19 case, okay, uh, we know this horrible things out there and they're going to try to stop it. Oh, OK. Now they've got these vaccines and these health passports. OK, good. So we can. That's the narrative that, that they want to implant in us. And unfortunately, it's mostly effective on most people most of the time if they are not exposed to alternative points of view. We can come in and break through that propaganda and conditioning, but only if our voices are out there to be heard. And with the technology, they've done a pretty good job of censoring alternative voices. And so you, you don't even know that a, a different narrative is available. 
it is getting to be that way anyway. Um, I, I mean, who would have thought looking back even two or three years would have been the relative freedom of the internet and wow, things were so great back then. Well, here we are and it's getting harder and harder. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's why I, I feel uh, I, I spent my first 15 years doing this, reaching out as far and as hard and as wide as I could with that net and trying to get this to as many people as possible. And now I feel I'm more like I'm trying to consolidate. I've reached millions of people around the world, and some of those people understand the value of this and are on board for this. So I'm trying to to consolidate that and move on and build a community through that. Um, because, of course, the millions and millions and millions, the masses, maybe I don't know what stage of sort of awareness they're at and where they are on the scale and whether they're on board. But people who want this information, we have to work now to try to consolidate a base from which we can actually get this information to people and, and make sure that this doesn't, these lines of communication don't get cut. So it's both a, an exciting time and a very dangerous time in a way. Yeah. May you live in interesting times or whatever that curse is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're open to some questions from these guys. James? Let's do it. Marsha, I know that you're just raring to go. I am. James, great to have you here. Um, our independent voices are so important at this time. Uh, as you probably know, Neil Young might have a different perspective on that. Uh, he recently threatened to have his entire music catalog removed from Spotify. He demanded that Spotify remove his entire music catalog unless they silenced Joe Rogan for spreading false information or fake news about vaccines. So Joe him so Neil has taken a stand against free speech. And so what is your perspective on that? Uh, from what I understand, Spotify has already made their decision and that is to not comply with uh, Neil Young's request and to remove his music from Spotify. So I don't know if that was an ultimatum that was meant to actually work, but apparently it didn't. But um, it is obviously ironic, especially the needle and the damage done singer <laughs> in this case, who's particularly ironic. But um, yeah, this is uh, it's mind boggling to me that the people who on the cultural left for half a century and marching in the streets, civil rights and all of this, these types of people are now at the point where they are demanding censorship of alternative viewpoints. It is the exact mirror image opposite of what we were, at least when I was growing up, that was the exact opposite. The left was all about free speech and the right were trying to censor through government, right? Right? No, that's because I think what this is exposing is it really isn't left-right. That isn't the fundamental div division. The fundamental division is authoritarian versus freedom. And we are starting to see the authoritarians. There are left authoritarians and right authoritarians, and they just want the government to do different things against the people in different ways. But they both want to use that stick of government to beat down their opponents. And that is, uh, is I hope, what people are starting to understand in all of this, that the, the old division that we all thought was the only thing that mattered, left and right, is not the only thing that matters when it comes to politics. And it's also ironic, too, because I grew up in the 60s, and Neil Young was performing them with his band, and they were talking about free speech and peace and love and, you know, all those kinds of things. And so mm -hmm. now he's done the exact opposite. Yep. Just one quick, quick, other quick question. What is, the, what is the opinion of 
Trudeau in that part of Asia. As in what do the Asian people think of Trudeau or, or what does Trudeau, how, well, it's a good question. I am going to confess, I have never heard anyone here talking about him. So <laughs> that will uh, perhaps answer. I, I don't think Trudeau is high on the list of priorities. Uh, I'm trying to think actually about the last news about Canada-Japan relations, for example, that I've seen in the newswires here. And I am struggling to think of anything that I have seen on that front. Um, I know that obviously Canada-Chinese relations are important, economic relations amongst others, um, but I can't think of anything to do with the broader Asia or even East Asia that, that really involves Trudeau in any way. Okay, thank you very much. Let's get Michael. <laughs> uh, hi, everybody. Hi, James. Uh, yeah, I think your points uh, regarding violence, possible violence provoked by the police in Ottawa is a valid point. But let us assume everything goes smoothly, no violence, and we get Trudeau out of office. That would be a desirable thing, but of course, only a small victory in a long battle. My big concern is who comes after Trudeau? If it's O'Toole or somebody else, it would be, sorry, my language, only same shit, different pile. So, so to speak, let's change the wallpaper and then do business as usual. I think what I think is we have to lay criminal charges against Trudeau and the other responsible people to say, tell the next person in charge, you don't do the same thing. It doesn't work. And um, yeah, and that is, that is my, my biggest concern because the necessary reforms that will have to follow will take years, but we need immediate action right now. So I would like to hear what James takes on that one. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And in fact, that's perfectly in accord with not only what I've been saying, but what people like Carol Quigley, Tragedy and Hope, have been saying for half a century or more, um, is that, yes, the entire point of the political system, the way it's been structured, is to allow people to vote the bums out every four or five years or whatever it is, just so that they can bring in a new cast of bums that will, yeah, they'll war on certain political football issues, but the fundamental agenda, they will not change. So yeah, who comes after Trudeau? Because Trudeau, whatever happens, will not be in office forever. He is going to leave at some point. So who comes in? I don't know, Christia Freeland or someone like that? I don't know, is that going to be that going to be better? No, of course not. So yes, you're right. Until and less and until there are genuine, actual criminal repercussions for the criminal things that have gone on, we're not going to fundamentally get any justice for what's going on, let alone an actual change in things. So I agree with you. Thanks. Rachel, what are you thinking? Hey there. Hi, James. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I just had a question there. I wonder if you could maybe give us some advice about um, what what we've been struggling with, what I've been struggling with this last year. Um, and a lot of us on these calls are, are is just the incredible chasm that is now between those of us that think one way and those of us that think another and mm. and we there's it's it's such a challenge to try to reach people now right because and we're so polarized which i learned from one of your um podcasts is is a tactic right to to separate and and kind of create this divide on purpose um do you, would you have any uh recommendations on and especially since in canada like people are quite naive about the the media being taken over they can't believe that the media has been taken over by you know one single narrative that's being bought in a in a way um so would you have any advice on how to like start to creep forward and try to reach it like is there any 
Is there any magic that you could suggest that how we could maybe start? Because what I feel is that 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 this will never end unless we can start to like convince people, which I know some people think is very futile and it may well be. But I wonder what your thoughts are about that. That's a very good question. In fact, that is one of the most common questions I ever receive and ever have ever received in the entire 15 years I've been doing this is, well, how do I bring this information to other people? And it's that's obviously an incredibly important one. If there was a magic silver bullet answer to that, of course, I would be blasting that from the rooftops nonstop 24-7. Unfortunately, I don't think there is because I think we have to meet individual people at their individual level. Everyone has their own individual awareness. They have their own ways of thinking. They have their own ways of responding to different ways that information is presented. They have their own understanding on various subjects. So we have to meet people at the level that they're at. So I I did articulate this in more detail in a questions for Corbett I did a year or two ago on how to how do I wake up my friends and family, something along those lines. You can check my archives for it. But essentially, my response generally is I wouldn't over strategize the presentation of information because uh, you have everyone has their own communicative style and I have a certain style. Someone else has a different style. Someone else has a different style. And everyone also has a different way that they like to hear information. Some people like the guy on the bullhorn slapping them in the face, trying to shake them by the collar to wake them up. Some people respond well to that. Some people are turned off by that. Some people like the soft approach. Some people like more of a friendly approach. Whatever it is, different people respond to different things. So I don't try to strategize about, okay, so how should I do this? I just try to be me. And I think people will pick up on the fact that this is an authentic person trying to authentically communicate. Some people like the way I do it. Some people won't. Chips fall where they may. If you're talking on an individual level, then hopefully if you know that person well, you might know that they're interested in this subject or that, you know, they're really off put by that subject. So you might be able to tailor it and and talk more to what they're interested in. Uh, And probably generally speaking, you'll probably have more success if it's a genuine conversation, not I'm going to tell them what's what, but trying to find out where they're at and ask them questions and see how they respond and respond to those responses rather than trying to direct information at people generally is a better approach. But as I say, different people respond to different things. And weirdly enough, although you might not suspect it from my manner and the way that I communicate, I think I did benefit from hearing some of the megaphone shouting, slap you in the face kind of people, because that that challenged me in a way. Okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. And then I start to research it. And oh, wait, oh, wait, he's actually right about that. So sometimes you never know how it's going to re- different people are going to respond. But as I say, if you're on a one to one level with a friend or a family member, hopefully you can tailor sort of the information to what they're actually interested in. And once they start asking you, Hey, I know you know about this. What do you think about that? That's when you know, okay, now we've got a genuine connection and you can build from that. Awesome. Thanks. Ted, I hope you don't mind if I can just ask James to just another quick question. Um, did how I'm just curious how you got into this. Like, is this something you saw yourself doing? Is this what you studied, or did you can you just share a little bit about how yeah. you came to this point? No, the so the funny thing is, so I studied English literature in at University of Calgary. I did my master's in Anglo-Irish literature at Trinity College Dublin. And after that, I was done with academia. 
Uh, I just didn't want to go on. I did not want to do a PhD. What am I going to do with my life? I don't know. I'll go teach English in Asia for a year, whatever. And it was funny because throughout my schooling, uh, people would always ask me, oh, you're studying English? What are you going to do with that degree? And my my stock go-to answer was always, I don't know, but I'm not going to be a teacher and I'm not going to be a journalist. <laughs> that was I was convinced of that. And I ended up becoming a teacher and a journalist. I don't know. So no, I never, ever, ever, ever expected to be doing this. It came completely out of left field, but I was so bowled over on my proverbial trip down the rabbit hole in 2006. I was so amazed at the discrepancy between what I had learned all my life and the information that I was able to verify for myself using this tool of the internet and direct access to document archives and things. I could look things up for myself. Once I started doing so, I just couldn't believe the discrepancy. And I knew the importance of the information. I never, I try not to take myself too seriously, but I take the information very seriously. I know it has changed my life and changed the lives of lives of people all around the world. So I, I, I just thought, well, we're in the internet age. I can do a podcast. I'm going to do a podcast. And I didn't think twice about it. I just did it. And to the amazement of everyone, but no one more so than myself. Here I am 15 years later doing this for a living. It's absolutely mind-bogglingly weird to me, but here we are. <laughs> this is this is the world we're living in in 2022. That's awesome. Thanks so much, James. As they say, God has a funny sense of humor. James, what was it back in 2006 that cracked you open? The first thing that really got to me was 9-11 truth information. So I was uh, sitting here in Japan and I was watching YouTube and Google video, which existed at that time and other things like that. And I kept seeing, I was watching political related stuff, but from a mainstream perspective, documentaries and things like that. But I would always see in the related of the YouTube sidebar, these crazy 9-11 conspiracy videos. And look, I was never adverse to conspiracy theorizing, but I always thought 9-11 was a step too far. Oh, that's just silly. But I was whatever, tempted. And I, I would click on a, one or two of these videos from time to time, generally to laugh at them. And generally, some of them were laughable. Um, but some of them presented information that I thought, well, that can't be true. And when I went to search for it, oh, that is true. I mean, for example, Operation Northwoods, that was something I'd never heard about. So well, let me look that up. Oh, here's the actual document you can read in the National Security Archive. Of, oh, yeah, the Joint Chiefs of Staff really did propose staging terror attacks, even killing American citizens in order to blame it on Cuba. Wow, that's that's pretty crazy. I never heard that before. And it was that process. As I say, it was the process not just of hearing the information, but actually researching it, looking it up, verifying it for myself was really when I started to descend into that rabbit hole. And from there, even at the point where I was convinced, oh, yeah, we've definitely been lied to about 9-11, but I don't know. I mean, all this other conspiracy stuff I'm hearing, it wasn't really until I started to understand the nature of the monetary system and the central banking fraud and how that operates. And I started to look into the history of that and, oh, okay, I see there's a much bigger thing going on here. And from that point, it was just the snowball rolling downhill. The rabbit just kept tumbling down, did it? It did indeed. In fact, it relates back to a story that I've told a couple of times about um, uh, 2005, I believe it was. I was going back to Canada from Japan for my uh, friend's wedding. I was going to be the best man. And I went in through Vancouver and uh, going in through customs after a long flight and 
you know, I was tired. And so the customs officer is looking at my card and is asking me the questions, you know, like, oh, why are you here? Like, do I even have to answer this? I'm Canadian. But uh, so I was like, oh, I'm you know going back for my friend's wedding and to watch the flames win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> he just looked up at me and just kind of nodded and scribbled something on my form. I, sends me through. And of course, when I go to collect my bags, there's there's a security officer at the I'm, I'm tapping on my shoulder. You're going to have to come in for some extra special screening. And of course, they go through and they start taking absolutely everything out of my bags one by one underwear, whatever, uh, holding up my uh, books. I was reading a book at the time. I can't remember. It was Chuck Palahniuk. I can't remember. And they were asking me like, oh, so why are you reading this book <laughs> for for fun? Like, how do I even answer that? I don't know. Uh, do you do you like this book? <laughs> like in a meaningful way and just crazy, creepy stuff like that until they get to my actual diary, my journal, and they start leafing through it. And then can we take a copy of this? And I, I was just left speechless at that time. I, I thought, I don't know. Can you? Like, I don't want you to, but I have no idea what my rights are in this situation. It was just utterly, it blowed blew me over. I had never even thought along those lines. I'm a Canadian entering Canada and what's going on here. And that was, I think the moment that the, the police state aspect of nine 11 really entered my consciousness in a, in a real like right arrow through the brain kind of way. So I think I had had experiences that prepared me for what was coming, but it wasn't until 2006 that it really bowled me over. And did you ever discover why they were so interested in you at the border there? (laughs) Honestly, I genuinely think it's because I made a joke to the customs officer. And, you know, I'm sure they have a quota. They got to send, you know, one out of every hundred people through special screening or something. So, you know, you're going to try to joke with me. That's that's what I figured. Because at the time, I mean, who was I? I was an English teacher in Japan. I, I was also a single, I was traveling by myself. I had a beard. So clearly I'm some sort of Muslim radical, right? Well, or a white supremacist or God knows. Oh, who knows, yeah. But back to your point, I mean, it, it seems to me that we have to face some kind of adversity or we, we, we recognize that we've been lied to. And when you start to realize you've been lied to, then you, you, you ask the question, where else am I being lied to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I see happening. I think why the narrative is crumbling around this COVID is people are starting to say, wait a sec. You told me this, and now I realize that's not true. And then if that's not true, what else is not yeah. true? Yeah. That's why I see this as a prime opportunity, really, because I know, I mean, my my audience was absolutely exploding in 2020 as this started unfolding. And I was getting so much. I mean, I can't even say how many people were starting to discover my work, which I think is contributory to why I was, of course, then removed from YouTube and other major platforms is because, of course, this is the moment in time in which people are starting to question. And once people start that process and start going down and start seeing what else they've been lied to, that's where the control really starts to falter. Yeah, can't have people questioning. Susan, we ended up pushing the wrong button, I understand, and you got booted out. So let's put you back in the queue. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad to be here and, and wonderful that you're here, James. And I agree with you 100% on everything you've said, every count uh, about sovereignty and the importance of, of that and moving that direction and out of the governmental control of the Corporation of Canada, which is um, not uh, is what our country is. And it, it's not really in control of the land at this point in time. Um 
there is a, and also about the media in particular, I worked in the media for several years since 1976 and I've worked at all the networks in Toronto. So I'm very familiar with, with all the corruption that went in on the, in the edit suites there in politics in particular and uh, how things moved around. So um, there, there's something that's happening right now in Canada um, with all that's going this that's going on. And there is a group called the Peoples of the Salmon. I know some of you have heard this from me before. Um, they are the orig- some of the, the original peoples, not the only ones, but they are of the original peoples. They were the guardians of, of the lands of Kanata. Uh, Canatan uh, is what it really is, is called the um, sacred lands. And um, they have been very active recently, um, since last year, and uh, more so even now. They just put out a um, legal public notice um, uh, to the government, the corporate against the corporations of Canada. And uh, they have also just submitted um, an order to vacate to Justin Trudeau and for the it's it's to the corporations of Canada to step down and to move away from from the rule of the land. So um, in this and and what you're saying about media in particular and I I'm really strongly believe that the only way to really put an end to this is to go after the media. Make them feel they've lost their integrity. They've been bought into this. They bought into it, and they are um, paid to be there. I mean, I some so, of my best friends are there. So, how would you recommend that we can go about to? And I agree, this wonderful convoy is great. What's happening with the convoy? But how would you suggest that we can find a way to go in and make the um, media? understand their responsibility. I think we have to go at it them from a legal perspective. I'm not opposed to that. And if people have some sort of legal recourse and think that they can make progress on that, I will do it. And absolutely anything you think you can do, I'm, I'm all for it. Try it. Give it a try. We are in desperate times. Push every button you have. Personally, my, I, I don't really want to take over the media or make them do their job. I want to be the media. No, 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 we don't need you. We do not need the CTVs and CBCs and all the propagandists of the world. And once we start to realize that, once we really start to internalize that, um, I think it's game over for the would-be controllers. So I I think I am doing what I think I can do, which is, okay, great. They're doing their thing. I'm going to do mine and I'm going to get my word out. And that's, again, that's why they're trying to crack crack down with the censorship right now. But uh, I would rather see a million people become the media rather than a million people protest to try to get the media to say what they want it to say. I think that's a good point is, is we're still trying to make somebody else to be different than they are. They're, they're captured. They're corrupt. They don't have the same sense of morality. Let's, let's not try to make them better. Let's just uh, do it better ourselves. I don't know that the court's the way to go because I think it is in one way, but I think we have to stand up as we, the people. Well, I I agree. And until we stand up, the courts are just as much followers as anybody else, I think. Uh, Kat, what have you got for us? Okay, I wanted to touch on something that Rachel started on. Um, and this is something that we battled to on this probably every week people have asked this question. 
they already think we have tin hats. So they've already got their backs up. How do we get the truth to them? Because they say, well, the experts say, but they don't produce an expert. They say, well, the news says, but it's their news. It's not our news. So how do we get past that point? Because a lot of us are struggling with what we say to break that ice, because there's already such a rift in families, in communities, in friendships. Where How do we approach that? Like, when I first started, it seemed so far-fetched that it couldn't be true. And I think this is probably where they're starting now. So when I go on to something and I watch something, then I think, now, how credible is this? Who is this person and how much weight does what they just say have? So how do we tell who is the legitimate, who isn't, what they should watch, how we should talk to people, how we reprogram ourselves so we can have these conversations? Yeah, you raise an important point in this, which is that we have to be prepared for a conversation like that, at any rate, if we want to have success at it. So we have to know what it is we're talking about and why we believe what we believe and what sources we do trust and why we trust them and have and why we don't trust that expert that they're citing. If we don't have that stuff nailed down, then who are we to be telling other people what to believe? So um, at the, I think the first thing that we need to do is to be prepared and organized ourselves. But secondarily, I will reiterate what I said before. It is not first of all it is not my responsibility to make someone else think something that they don't want to think or whatever it's up to them hey i know this thing here's this thing that i i know and here's the sources and here it is if they accept it that's great if they if they don't uh, there's nothing i can do to change that you can lead the horse to water you cannot make them make them think and unfortunately the source game is often a game that people employ they will ask you for your source on something so that they can say, well, I don't trust that source and boop, game over. Once you get to that point, I don't think there is, I don't think there's a fruitful way to continue that line of discussion with someone. Once they've made the decision that they're not going to accept information, they're not going to accept it. And it's hard, but sometimes we have to accept that that person just isn't ready for hearing something different at this point. And when they are ready, well, at least now they know to come to you. So I think we have to approach it more from the perspective of, I have information. This is what I know. This is why I believe what I believe. I'm not here to convince you or to make you believe what I believe. I'm just putting information out there. James, I know we only got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to know, you've been watching the Davos, uh, what is it called, 4.0 or something rather? Anything that came out of there we should know? Uh, nothing much beyond what I uh, covered on New World Next Week uh, last week, was it? Yes, Governance 4.0, which is now one of the things that Klaus Schwab is trying to push, which is the latest version of go governance that he wants to institute. Uh, governance 3.0 was that government by crisis that I was talking about, but government Governance 4.0 is going to be the building of new institutions based around stakeholder capitalism, equality, inclusivity, blah, blah, blah. All the same stuff. And uh, from what I've seen, I did not watch every speech of every one of the blathering politicians. So I, if anyone did or has some nuggets in there that they want to direct my attention to, please get in touch with me. You can get in touch with me through the contact form on CorporateReport.com. But from what I saw, it was a lot of the mealy mouth political blathering things that you would expect. So 
I, I, my take fundamentally on Davos and on the World Economic Forum in general is that it's not like this is the controlling power in the world. It's just that this is Klaus Schwab essentially trying to brand a specific and and come up with these catchphrases and terms that then get picked up on by the global super class that then becomes uh, sort of raises the importance of the World Economic Forum. And to an extent, I mean, even the fact that we're sitting here talking about him shows that he's been successful at that. And in fact, there was an interesting Vanity Fair piece. It's I mean, it's mainstream media, so it only goes as far as it goes. But it does point out that this is a man whose main talent and skill is essentially guessing what the next big fad is going to be amongst the global jet set and sort of hopping on that bandwagon ahead of time. So that's that's the way I see it. It's just a rebrand of the same agenda that we've seen all along. So I don't want to give them more attention than they're worth. And tell us about your fake news awards that's happening. Is it tomorrow? Uh, yes, yes. It's Thursday for you. It's Friday for me. So yes, uh, tomorrow, I hope it should be up. Um, I've got it now all recorded. Brock is busy v- editing the video together. So you will be able to see the fake news story of the year, along with several other categories of fake news. And uh, it will, as as the if you've seen the fake news awards before, you'll know there's a mixture of fun, humor, but also some very serious information. And so if you find it useful and helpful in breaking some of this information, breaking through that propaganda construct that people have been uh, welded into, please spread it around. And for those that want to get more James Corbett, what's the best way to do that? The one and only, no, the the major way that you should get me is through my website, CorbettReport.com. Do not rely on social media middlemen because here today, gone tomorrow, who knows what's going to happen. But I will be at CorbettReport.com until they seize the domain name, CorbettReport.com, in which case you could get me through my server number, if you know it, or you could get it through IPFS backup. Anyway, there's information about that on my site if you're interested. But the primary way for now, bookmark CorbettReport.com. And from there, you can sign up for email. There's a free email list so you can get updates. Or there's RSS feeds, which I Highly recommend if people don't know what RSS is, please look into it. That's the way we disintermediate the social media middlemen. So it doesn't matter how they try to censor us. And of course, you can just follow uh, on the homepage every day. And any last words of wisdom for us Canadians? Good luck. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, This is an exciting time. It's an important time. Uh, As I say, I don't think this convoy is the be all and end all, but it's something. And I'm glad at the very, very least, it is bringing people together in a spirit of excitement over what can happen instead of worrying about what is being done to them. No, uh, the power is ours. It always has been. Do not listen to the liars and propagandists who would take that away from you. Fabulous. Very grateful to you for not only this hour, but your work in trying to uh, raise our awareness and consciousness. All right. Thank you. Uh, If you find value in the kind of conversations that we have here at Vaccine Choice Canada, I invite you to support our work and our mission by becoming a member. Vaccine Choice Canada is Canada's oldest and most trusted vaccine risk awareness authority.